Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, welcome back to the show. Scott, it's good to be back. It's been a while. Uh, well, you've been traveling. Yeah, yeah, we've been, been um, we, we've been base camping. I'm on a I'm on a borrowed computer today. Mine is in the shop. Is it a Mac? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to get consumer electronic political, but I'm a bit I'm a bit uh, upset with Apple at the moment. Well, it's interesting because we've all been there. I know that there's a shared experience here. I think that with Apple, the pandemic hurts you because it's. It's better when you go in the shop. Could you go in the physical shop? I uh, I didn't go to an Apple store because uh, that would have taken forever. So I went to a, an, an authorized repair shop. So here in London, I could go in. They've got you have to book an appointment, uh, one person in the shop at a time. Um, so yeah, and I'm sure I'll get it back next month sometime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but you're we're so dependent on technology right and this tends to show well we are i mean especially especially now right everybody's working from home or a lot of yeah. people still are yeah so let's talk a little bit about risk today shall we well, I, I, I i never would have guessed that uh, that my american co-host would would have risk on his mind right exactly exactly right <laughs> how, how, how are you guys doing over the, like where you are because it is such a it is such a local question now Right. How, so I've how, talked to how several safe Canadians. Do you feel how secure? Do you feel where you are? I've talked to several Canadians last week, and they were in this week, and they were all just like, "We're so sorry for you." <laughs> like watching what's going on. Now I feel, I feel personally like you know I'm being pretty careful. I'm wearing masks. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, going out much. I'm, I'm kind of trying to be safe. And I think uh, uh, in the Northeast, it is much more. Um, people are being much more careful and compliant. I, I found this article that mapped out uh, the settlement. Oh, you have an Air Queen mask, Nano mask. This is so impressive. If you're best, listening to us, best, best if you're watching on Facebook Live, you can Korea. see it. That's what you want. Oh, yeah. So I, this I have, article I, I read... Really, in the mask manufacturing industry. I love it. I, I read this article that was talking about how the settle... Like, you look at the different settling patterns in the United States, and they were saying that basically in the Northeast, you have this kind of traditional religious... Wasp, Protestant, Presbyterian, communal morality group. Okay, and so that leads to sort of okay, we'll comply, right? And then, like in the southeast and and the in the west, you have this rugged individualism, like we're kind of don't tread on me. And they're looking at like these certain states where people are just not being compliant. And the article is kind of arguing, look, this is has to do with deep cultural patterns in Amer in, in American history and life. And so it's so I'm I you know in the northeast, people are pretty um, again pretty compliant and pretty open to what restrictions are laid down or offered by government. Again, it, other parts of the country, not so much. And, and then you have this really interesting dynamic in the United States because we've politicized every single square inch of life in the United States. <laughs> but we, have, we, have, we have these Republican governors who will not let Democrat mayors in their states pass mask ordinances, right? So you have, so the people that are in the most densely populated parts of these states who are really facing the worst of the virus are wanting to impose additional restrictions to protect people. And a lot of times the governors are saying, no, you can't do it. 
So it's these again. It's mostly mostly this is happening in red states. Uh, it's it's it tends to be this red state governors, but the the their big cities tend to be governed by Democrats, even though the city the state by and large is Republican. So it creates. I mean, it is like it is kind of shocking, astounding, actually, how poorly we're dealing with this. We had sixty five thousand cases yesterday. Sixty five thousand. Before we go deep down the rabbit hole of of um, what's happening in your neighborhood. Um, just to pull back for a moment, I, you know, the general observation, it's really interesting how how cultural differences have become so concrete uh, through this crisis. You know, and, and I think this is kind of a, a general insight for us to carry. There's, there's a lot about the world that is true, but often abstract and therefore kind of hard to see um, that that now has been made very, very clear and concrete. And and another one of the things on that list is is cultural difference. Um, you know, this is a great time to be a social scientist who you know is trying to identify and articulate <laughs> to the world how you know how Eastern U.S. And, and Western U.S. are in some ways different. How Americans and Canadians are different. How Australians and Kiwis are different. How how you know Emirati in the UAE and Saudis are different. How Chinese and Koreans are different. There is so much to to see tangibly in um, in how we respond to to uh, you know living under lockdown and, and and going back to work. I was doing a workshop with a group of uh, senior government officials in the UAE yesterday, actually, and and you know as we're all doing, we're talking about how how life is different now. And one of the um, one of the things they talked about is how. You know, up until this point, they've had a strong culture of you know showing up for work. That the way to demonstrate to uh, to anyone that you were being a productive worker was to show up in the office um, and you know checking in, checking out is a big part of uh, work life culture there. And that was just a given. Uh, and now, of course, uh, everybody's working from home, so you you can't watch over everybody's shoulder and everybody's discovered that actually we're all more productive <laughs> working from home so there have been you know these these very clear and concrete um just sort of coming up against um how how we behave culturally and and then having the opportunity to kind of step back and uh, and question it which is pretty extraordinary i don't know if you heard it i was telling you about um some work i was doing um in in the Middle East yesterday, and and there in, in that country, you know, a strong culture of of showing up to work. Um, that's how you kind of demonstrate that you're being productive is by being there. And you know, kind of that that given that that strong assumption that you got to show up to to demonstrate you're productive was just you know reality completely flew in the face of that when everybody was forced to work from home, and uh, people felt like they were getting more stuff done. Because, you know, less time in the commute and, and, and for all of those reasons, right? Easier to schedule meetings and, 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 and things like that. Um, which, I mean, I, and I think that that is one of the big opportunities in this moment um, to really notice uh, some of the things we took for granted um, that, that now that we have to, we have the chance to, to reevaluate. Um, and, and I think one of them, so, you know, what's, what I suppose is kind of, you know, marvelous <laughs> if you're a political scientist about the United States is really is demonstrating how, you know, uh, your one country is in, in some sense, actually an amalgam of many different cultures. 
it, it makes it almost ungovernable sometimes. You know, it, it's just so large. I mean, and they're not, there aren't really many examples of, of countries that are as large and diverse as ours that are, that are functionally really robust, healthy democracies. I mean, usually they're more autocratic. I, I mean, I think you think of like Russia, China, Brazil, <laughs> when you, when you're looking at countries that get to the big scale that we are and have so many diverse populations, it, it tends to not, so I don't know, it's an interesting kind of factor. And one of the things that makes us perhaps uh, struggle with things is risk. Right. So we want to talk today about risk a little bit, risk taking and risk sharing, because this is sort of what happens after the lo- after the total lockdown. Right. Like we we are in a situation where when there's a stay at home order in place, there's not much, you don't have to think much about risk. Right. You stay home. You stay the hell home. You don't have to process or think that much. But this woman who I saw interviewed on MSNBC, I think she's from Penn. And she teaches law and psychology there. She wrote this great piece in the Atlantic Ideas section saying, our minds aren't equipped for this kind of reopening as states ease restrictions on business, individuals face a psychological morass. And basically, she's just saying humans aren't really good at risk assessment and risk and figuring out which risks are healthy to take and which ones aren't. And we have all sort of cognitive biases. And she points out, you know, I, I, six feet means something different. I'm, I'm more sure I'm six feet away from a friend than a stranger. Hmm. I'm more likely to judge someone else's risk taking if they're a different race than me. Like she goes through all of these cognitive biases and and uh, processes by w- by which we evaluate risk. And she even has this great example that I love, where she talks about this is this is an actual um, psychology judgment experiment before the pandemic. Uh, they they talked about a hypothetical Asian disease that comes to the United States. Right? This is this is like an actual hypothetical. <laughs> Funny Trump. that that's the hypothetical. Yeah, it's the experiment they've been ask, using for years. Yeah, to, to ask participants to choose between two public health policies. In option A, one third of the population survives for sure, but no one else makes it. Right, two thirds die, one third survives. In option B, there's a one third chance. What's that? Certainty. Right, you get the certainty. Option A, certainty: two thirds of everyone dies, and a third survive. Yes. Okay. Option B, there's a one third chance that I'll survive, but a two third chance that none do. So what she's found is that um, participants, when they chose, saw it in one of two ways. How many lives would be saved? Some people saw it in terms of it. And others, how many would die? So people consistently chose option A, which offered certainty if they were thinking in terms of potential gain, saving lives. But option B, which involved more risk if they were thinking about potential loss. So a weighty decision was swayed dramatically by semantic framing. Okay, wait. So I'm, I'm being a bit dense this morning, let me think. So, uh, I know you just want to get to the implications, but I need to understand the question first. So you're saying, okay, so you're a psychologist, you're coming to me, and you're basically interested in, like, how, Chris, how do you evaluate risk, Chris? Right. Okay. How do you make choices? Okay. And you're telling me, uh, I've got two options. Option A, and there's, you know, let's take this improbable case. Let's suppose there's this dangerous Asian flu, and it comes into the country. It comes over here. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Never going to happen because pandemics are things that happen in other places. But let's exactly let's they don't happen here. Play the game. I'm a researcher. I'm trying to get my PhD, and I'm going to give you two choices. Okay, choice number one, and let me see if I got this right. A third of you can choose option A. Um, one third of everybody dies. Yep, and that's that's just it. So basically, we no, do a no. Call. Wait, no, no. One third option no. A is one third. Uh, I'm survive. such a bad research subject. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, well, one third of the population survives for sure, but no one else makes it. Okay, so, so no, so option A is that a third of a third survives and two thirds die. Yep. Okay, and there's no ambiguity about that. Basically, 
200, 200 some million people are going to die. There'll be a hundred some million of us. Right. If we're in the U S left. Okay. That's clear. Okay. I I hope I have another choice. (laughs) So option option B would be option B is there's an option B. There's a one third chance that everyone will survive, but a two thirds chance that no one survives. Your God. Okay. So option B there's, there's, so one third. Okay. So, okay. So option B is basically how much risk do you want to take on? Because option A, two thirds are guaranteed to survive. Well, no, option A, <laughs> one third is guaranteed to survive. Two thirds is going to die. Okay. And option B, everybody could be saved, right? There's a chance. There's a one third uh, chance that everybody. There's a one third chance that everyone survives in option, in option B. But a two thirds chance that no one does. That everyone dies. Yeah, so they're saying like if you're looking at it from the potential gain saving lives, um, uh, people chose uh, option A, which offered certainty that we're saving lives. But option B with more risk if they were thinking about potential loss. So if they were thinking more about the fear of lost lives than more about the potential of certainly saving lives. So it's like, are you kind of are you thinking about the people that are saved? Or are you think about the people that are dying? And if you're thinking primarily about the people that are dying, you'll choose option B, even though there's a risk everybody dies, because you could, by chance, save everybody. No one's going to die. If I choose option B, there's a chance that we're all safe. And if that's what I'm concerned about, I'm going to roll the dice on maybe none of us get hurt. So basically, okay, so I I get it. So By the way, way, this exercise (laughs) earned earned one of the experimenters the Nobel Prize for economics. This Ah, well that 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 makes sense because it's not a very simple exercise when you really (laughs) Right. Okay, no, but let me let me just try to get myself because I think I mean if 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 I can't really grasp the experiment, there's no point going forward. But basically saying, okay, so we've got a pandemic coming and basically two choices. Either so let let's say you're God, okay? I know it's easy for you to imagine. You're God, and you're saying to Chris, you're saying to Chris, Chris, you got two choices. Give me a third of your of your souls, and I'll I'll let I'll let the other two thirds survive. Right. That's your first choice. But you've got to yes. give me a third of your souls. You got to sacrifice a third of your people. Right. Or I'll let you roll. I'll let you roll the dice. Um, and let's say let's say it's a ordinary six sided dice. I'll let you roll the dice. If you roll a one or a two, then you're off the hook. You don't have right. to give me anybody. If you roll a three, four, five, or six, then you have to give me everyone. Right. Right. Wow. You're exactly in the right ballpark of the experiment. So, okay. So let me, let me, before we even get into her complicated and Nobel Prize winning research, what would you do in that situation? So, okay. So here's your choice. And I'm sorry to put you in this position, Scott. Um, but you can choose one of two possible futures. Future A, um, you've got to give me 100 million people now. Right. I, I'm going to kill 100 million people. Future B, here's a, here's a die. And if you roll a three, four, five, or six, you have to give me everyone. You roll a one or a two, then I'll just go away and play this game with right. somebody else. So how would... I, I don't know. It's interesting. I think I would tend to choose B because I'm thinking in terms of like lives lost the lives the, and, and 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 the potential that we can all just get away from this right we can all get away i think that that's my what i would choose um it, it's the interesting are so high right they are high they are high the stakes are high because we could all die it is uh, maybe that's irresponsible i mean maybe but this is this is the great thing this is what i really enjoy about her piece because it gets you thinking also she talks about how the cognitive researchers have something called uh declining marginal disutility that people associate with others deaths 
So the feeling that no deaths and one death between one death and no deaths is really, really bad, right? Like, hmm. but the difference between 110,000 and 111,000 deaths is like negligible people. Like they don't, right. So it that extra headlines, right? Yeah. Right. That's, that, that's, that's an extra thousand deaths. It doesn't like one person dies. It's really bad. But if you're, you know, 110, 112, if people don't process it the same way, which is why I wondered so right maybe now. Maybe that's the point. It's like, like people do not process it the same way, which I think, I, I think is exactly like when you really put yourself in positions of ambiguity about risk. Um, it's if the advice you're giving people is do what you think is responsible, you are going to get a wide range of behaviors as a result. Yeah. And she thinks that's part of the problem. She says, you know, during a disease outbreak, vague guidance and ambivalent behavioral norms will lead to thoroughly flawed thinking. If a business is open, but you'd be foolish to visit, that's a failure of leadership. She's saying like, basically, we all make such skewed decisions and we all got weird psychological presuppositions. And so she's talking about, you know, if you're staying at home and, uh, you're seeing people, you know, at rallies or protest this, and you're just shouting at them. You're not social distancing on this stuff. She's saying that basically we're not very well wired to individually assess risk very well. So we need a sort of more collective. You know, it's it, she she talks about how it's really helpful for government to or a store to mark out six feet because I can I don't measure that very well myself. Or the fact that again, you're more likely to think you're standing the appropriate distance with a friend than a stranger, and all these things. She's saying that we are so poorly wired to assess risk and figure out which risks we should take together that we need kind of more of a collective approach to it Hmm. where government would, would, would help give us more guidelines where, you know, and I think as you and I were talking earlier, we'd also probably want a sort of shared public conversation. So people will own the risk taking and and sharing. Cause I think if people, uh, uh, we had a guy on Harry Pierce a couple weeks ago, you can go listen to the episode, but he talked about how people, if they're not shaping the norms in a pandemic response, they're, they're more likely to flout them. And, and that, I think that's happening all over the country in the United States. I mean, you can see these regions where people are just completely flouting them and being completely irresponsible. But this is where, you know, she's saying that, that if, if, as, as we are getting back, wading back into some sort of phased re-engagement with society, we're not just at the strict stay at home phase. Right. And I, I'm, I'm assuming London, right. You're wading back in, right. You're, I see you've got a haircut. So you're, yeah, you know, I'm actually looking at your hair too. I, I assume that you got a haircut too recently. Well, I've been cutting my own hair during the pandemic. I always cut my okay. own hair, so it's, so pandemics oh. doesn't doesn't stop me. <laughs> uh, but but uh, you know, as you're, it's, I think her point is that when, when there's these choices that are again, I like that she said, you know, if a business is open, but you'd be foolish to visit it, like bars, right? I mean, bars are, are a great example, right? Bars are a disaster. Bars and church services are the disaster areas, right? Uh, for people, I mean, these are places because churches, because of the singing and things like that, and bars just because you're talking and you're drinking, you're not wearing a mask, you're not doing all that stuff. So the fact that we are... And, and what she's these, saying is that we are not psychologically equipped for the for this kind of um, discretionary choice. Yeah, all the time. Like all the time, discretionary choice. All the time, all the time. You know, your risk assessment, risk assessment. I mean, we do it all the time to some degree and we don't do it well normally, but she's thinking in a pandemic, we are so poorly suited um, as individuals to make decisions that are good for the public good and public health that we're just so fraught with ambiguity that, you know, we need a kind of, we need more government leadership. And, and as you and I were saying, we need more of probably a public conversation so that you and I feel like we're in this together. 
right? So that you and I feel as though that we are, that we have some collective agency and ownership of, of whatever we're agreeing to, to keep each other safe. Because I think that the more that we agree on that, the more that we agree to that, the more a chance that we're actually going to be more responsible. The, the other thing I, that uh, I think comes out of the ambiguity is um, it, it does actually make it harder to come together and talk about these things. Because there is such a, you know, there is this psychological hit that you get, this like, you know, little little bite of sugar when you get to sort of like shame someone else <laughs> for not abiding by the rules. Um, you know, this country is classic for that. I mean, if you like standing in line is a national pastime or in normal times is. And so anybody who doesn't get the the, the social conventions of waiting in the queue, you know, immediately right. gets from people and they love to do it right there's a there's a there's a making myself bigger by calling you out for um for not obeying the norm but in a moment like now where like so much is left for us to interpret uh it it, it creates a lot of psychological strain uh and friction that 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 people are doing this we're all making our own assessments of what you're supposed to be doing i, I actually had that experience this morning so you know i'm in this big park in london you know People go to the parks. You're encouraged to go to the parks to exercise and stuff like that. You can't go to gyms yet. Uh, I go up early in the morning. So there's very few people there. In the park, I don't have my mask on. Right, right. And I'm, you know, on this hill doing some calisthenics. This woman at the bottom of the hill. So, like, we're, like, 25 yards away. <laughs> walks by wearing a mask. She calls me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the middle yeah. of doing my jump rope. Like, where's your mask? <laughs> and walks on, you know. You know, with the kind of walks on just a couple inches taller for for a few moments, having um, you know, having having been the the voice of authority, you know, claiming claiming that claiming that social authority to police, um, to police the world around you. And I think I I feel like that's part of what this article you're talking about was going to like. There is this psychological strain that is put upon society, um, on social bonds when. Um, when everybody is kind of invited to do um, their own risk assessment, their own interpretation of of, of what is an appropriate trade off, I, I find in my head right now I have the like the metaphor of a trombone. Somehow, it's really easy to know when it's all the way in or all the way out. That slide, but but like to find the right point along the slide. So everybody stay at home. And everything back to normal. People understand that. But anything other than that is a very ambiguous kind of in-between space where it takes considerable skill to to know what the right position ought to be. And none of us have experience with this. Yeah. Yeah. And she even says, it's interesting because she says that individual citizens, citizens facing a range of permissible options, receive, receiving com- confusing public health messaging, triaging competing ethical commitments are not the best targets of our practical and moral concerns. Uh, you know, she thinks this idea that this tendency to shame and to, and to judge and to kind of look at people making suboptimal choices. She said in the pandemic, this urge is a red herring. It is too easy to focus on people making the bad choices rather than on people having bad choices. People should practice humility regarding the former and voice outrage about the latter. And I think that's interesting because she's saying, like, look, with all the ambiguity, we should be a little less judgmental and more humble about people. But then with what we can c- actually shape, the collective response, that's where we should focus our, our frustration and outrage, where if, if, if 
people are, if, you know, public policy is becoming irresponsible um, and then people, you know, are actually, you're actually putting people in situations where they don't have as, as much of a chance to make healthy choices because it's just too ambiguous and people are just too messy. Hmm. So, okay. So I, I like this distinction between uh, the choices we make and the choices we have, you know, making bad choices and having bad choices. And that does seem to capture a lot of what we've just been talking about, that what we should get outraged about, what we should really be focusing on is what is the menu of choices yeah. that are kind of being presented to society? And is that a good menu? Yeah. Um, rather than and in, and you know, rather than all be the virtue police about the choices we are individually making. And I guess her point is that be careful about being the police of the choices we are making because we all have very skewed ways uh, and unreliable ways of measuring risk. As, as you said, her earlier point that like if you are a friend and we're standing four feet apart, in my mind, that's that's at least six feet. Right. So right, you're right. standing close to one another. If you were a stranger and we're standing eight feet apart. Right. Like, dude, you're getting way too close. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And that has nothing yeah. to do with the actual distance, and has everything to do with my perception yeah. of it. So let's be careful when we're when we're policing one another. So that all makes sense to me. I think if we're if we're really trying to get seriously into this question of risk, um, and you know, like how we t like how we take risk and how we share risk, and what a pandemic tells us about that, um, I feel like there there like needs to be a next chapter in in her argument because um, the choices that we have, right, the menu that is set, uh, I think itself is a is a is a big big question, um, and also like our willingness. This is to your point about the conversation we had a few weeks ago with Harry Pierce at the Center for the Future of Democracy. You know, our willingness to accept the menu, I think, really does depend on. Um, how we got to that menu, right? Yeah, that's I agree. I, I completely menu. agree. That's the hole in her argument because I think it is it 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 is kind of a she's 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 sort of contrasting the public individual decision makers and then the kind of collective you know the public good or, or, or government and, and government administration. I think you're right that we need those things need to shape each other mutually, mutually condition each other. Otherwise, people are not going to feel ownership. And and I'll and I'll be uh, yeah you're right ownership is the key word and I'll be more generous I don't think it's the hole in her argument I think it's the it, it it's the missing piece like okay it's, right it, it's it's the, the, it's the outworking it it would be the next outworking yeah 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 yeah, yeah. but I think and, it's yeah. interesting because when I think of the judgmental stuff I think it's interesting because I have a ton of friends in Phoenix right now and this one guy who's a pretty accomplished science writer he texts me these he'll text me like every day these awful articles about how bad Phoenix is, right? He'll text me, we're number one. We're number one. He's like the citizens of, of Phoenix right now. He's like, we're extras in a dystopian film. <laughs> but, but, but here's what you think, though. You think like, okay, kids are packed in bars, right? And a lot of the, the age is dropping, infection rates in places like Florida and Arizona, like the median age is really going down and he's getting infected. Well, kids think they're invulnerable, right? And we are telling people, we have told people like, oh, the risk is very is very low if you're not if you're not uh old. But I mean, 21-year-olds are getting hospitalized for this. I mean, so it's not so, so we've given people this kind of information that it's not that unsafe if you're a kid. Then we've opened bars, right? Which again, bars and churches are the two most risky 
to the most risky indoor things you can go to or synagogues. Uh, so, so we've put these young people who, you know, again, when you're younger, your, your, your frontal lobe is still forming decision-making risk and you're giving them this option, right? So how are you not surprised that, and, and, you're, and again, we're, we're probably telling them that the risk is a little more minimal than it is. And so, of course, they're going to go pack into bars and drink because they're because they're stir crazy and they're you know uh, I saw pictures in London when I called you the other day I was like wow man I saw some wild pictures from London where all these kids and it's mostly young people are going out and they're, they're stir crazy and you get it right you get it um, so it's like you know you don't the proper thing is she's saying I don't think it's to shame them it's to think okay well what have we gotten wrong here that we're creating this much problematic risk together so so I would say so. And, and I think the answer that she has kind of set up is um, this distinction between asking people to make choices, the, the choices people make and the choices they have, um, and that maybe people were given too much responsibility to make choices um, about risks that are very hard to perceive when if you're you know, a scientist, a psychologist who studies it, you know that we are setting ourselves up for failure. Yeah. Um, but I think... I also think that, you know, it relates to, um, okay, so it, going back two minutes, this distinction between asking people to make choices and setting the menu of choices people have, the more we talk about it, the more I think is, while it is so appealing, it is also a bit of, what's the word? Is it a red herring? I don't know. It, if you make the distinction that clear, then it won't work because people won't accept the menu, <laughs> right? Unless, unless there is this conversation yeah. around, at least in democratic society, between, you know, we're going to make choices about the choices we have, then people aren't going to accept the menu, I think. Yeah. Or at least that, that's the part that needs to be figured out. And, and there needs to be a societal perception that we have accepted this limited menu of choices. Um, yeah. And that's hard right now because the way, and at least in the United States, the way things are structured, it's kind of top down and it's governors and it's administrative. If there's not even the response to this stuff is not even legislative by and large. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it, it's executives saying, but hmm. we're locking but down or we're not. Yeah. But so I, maybe, and maybe the original sin, um, at least in, you know, in, in this society here, maybe in the United States, was um, okay. I don't quite know how to say this. What what I, what I'm thinking about right now is how when lockdown happened, there really wasn't. And okay, that was very clear. You know, we got to flatten the curve. Everybody understood that there was a pretty broad level of public, um, and I wouldn't say obedience. I would say adoption. Yeah, of this social objective. But at the same time there was really no longer story told about, and then what? And so people are like, oh, okay, we got to do this thing. And then once we do this thing, I guess, then we're done. Then we've won. And so without some kind of broader narrative of, no, we got to do this. And then we've got to stay huddled up for several months while we reconfigure all sorts of the ways things happen, the ways schools work and the ways that, that, that offices work and stuff. So that then we're going to come back into a very different configuration of behaviors for six to nine months to minimize spread while we wait for, you know, a, a vaccine. So, so everybody, this is going to be like the next 18 months are going to be like this. 
this whole flatten the curve, this is just like chapter one of the story, you know, and, and because I think without any kind of understanding of the, the, the kind of the choices that need to be made over the next 12 to 18 months, the default narrative become, okay, well, well we, we did what we were told. Yeah. We all adopted this goal. So now we're done. Right. Yeah. And that that somehow um, was the, I think the 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 the. Sorry, I, I can't find the words on a Friday afternoon, but I feel like that was the that was the piece that was missing. Yeah, and I think continuing even, to even, renew kind of public commitment to the menu of choices we have. Absolutely, and giving people a clear goal like this is why we're doing it. Because I think even some people I've heard saying, "Well, I thought we were confused that we were trying to, um, you know, cur- flatten the curve." To stop the spread of the disease, other people are saying, "Well, it's so that the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed." And all these, like, there are these different kind of narratives that that get told for for why we're doing these things, right? And I think you're right. Like, the more the more clear we can get about the goals and get a kind of shared ownership, I, I think you're going to have a, again a greater chance of compliance. By the way, uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, we've been Facebook living this now, oh, and oh, so <laughs> yeah, so I just noticed Gary Werner, the guy I was talking about, who's the science writer from Phoenix, he's watching the podcast. So Gary, hello to you, my friend, and thank hey, you because I've been sharing your stories. I've been, I've been, I've been sharing how you text me saying we're number one, we're number one. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point about, um, I'm not quite sure where we're going with this yet, but we'll, we'll, we'll it'll be interesting to see where we land. To your point about, um, you know, the the burden of asking individuals to make uh, accurate risk assessments. Um, you know, I think of friends in Phoenix who sort of back in March or April were saying like, you know, by July, this is going to completely burn out in Arizona because nothing can survive on a surface right. outdoors in this state in the summer, right? When it's a hundred, yeah, it's a, it's a balmy 119 there today. I think it's going to be right. Um, which I mean, I don't never live in Arizona, but that sounded right to me. I mean, I can't imagine anything surviving on the handle of a shopping cart. Um, in in the burning heat of an Arizona summer, but apparently there are more things to consider than that. I suppose yeah, manages right. to live in my body is the point. Right, 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 and that's the thing I think she's getting at that we're kind of you know we are we are so and a lot of this too is like you know the um the whole the guy who did uh, thinking fast and slow right what was that um Kahneman uh uh Vosk, uh, I forget their names but um Kahneman and the two Israeli scholars. That's but they would say. do these studies like this. These are the kind of studies they would do, right? And like they would do these studies where you where they would ask people to spin a wheel, graduate students, right? Ask them to spin a wheel with numbers on it. Maybe it hits like 15 or 82 two or three or four. Then after they spun the wheel, they'd ask them to name how many countries were in Africa. And correspondingly, the people would guess more the higher they spun on the wheel. Things have nothing to do with each other, right? <laughs> right? Like, but so that's the kind of way, you know, we're, we're just, you know, we, we, uh, we, we just have this strange psychological web of, of decision-making influences and things like that. And I think that's where the, the, where her point is, is well, is, is well taken because people, it's just not, and it's not a shaming thing. Like, oh, like it's, it's a thing that, look, we're just not really well wired for this kind of responsibility as individuals. I, like, so we're just, what, what's it's not who we are. What, what's interesting to me, and maybe we can design an experiment and get our own Nobel Prize for this, is we, there, there is also something in how we are wired. Maybe this is a kind of, you know, 
Western civilization Cartesian thing. But we do tend to think in terms of, you know, dialectics. It's one or the other, right? We are not well wired as individuals for this. Therefore, we need some kind of social or state kind of, you know, agenda setting to, to help us help us have a, a safe menu of choices in front of us. I think the Cartesian thing is kind of a middle layer missing, which is. Yeah, I think the Cartesian problem, too, is the subject object dichotomy. Like, I'm the subject here, discrete from the object that's the world, right? So, like, I'm here distinct from what I'm trying to know. Instead, I'm embedded in it, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, it's not there. I'm not here. I'm part of a whole complex biosocial psychological matrix that I'm, that I, you can't take me out of, you know? Like, it's, I think that. That kind of approach helps us more accurately to see what reality is like, that, that we're not like distinct. I'm not this distinct individual knowing subject over here. You know, I'm embedded in a huge web of things that affects how I perceive the web of things in myself. And I feel I feel that that web is is why, you know, some of the some of the really strange outcomes like, you know, spin a wheel and how many how many states are there in Africa. I think that we, we insulate ourselves somewhat from those mistakes in judgment by being in a group of people, you know, asking some of these questions together. I mean, I would imagine if one person spun the wheel and you've got 20 other people watching him do this, and then they're asked how many states are there in Africa to give an answer, then, you know, the rest of the group would, you know, probably offer some diverse responses to that. Right. Or maybe the group says, oh, wow, I noticed, I noticed the pattern here as we're spinning together. Right. 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 And so so we always kind of set up these experiments in a way of saying, like, you know, the individual is really not equipped. And that and that is kind of the takeaway when actually I feel like the takeaway should be, you know, one step further. The individual. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> because there are some things we function much more effectively, much more intelligently um, when we have the opportunity to process stuff as a group. And I'm not talking Absolutely. think. I'm not talking group think. I mean, like getting into an environment of kind of healthy dialogue around. Oh, it's interesting you think that way because you know you look at the similar inputs and these things or these patterns that we see. I would think that we would go another way, and then people are like, oh yeah, upon reflection, you help me get outside of myself so that we can kind of look at my response, and me too, I can I can give it a, a more thoughtful evaluation. In the last base camp we did, I, yeah. my, I, my, I had a friend invited who's a Republican lawyer from Alabama. He loved it. Very reflective guy. But he was just saying it was so helpful to talk about the us versus them thing and what's going on in the world with people that weren't American. That just processing with them was so helpful for him to get out of the American story. And I find the same thing. Like I, I've spent a lot of time lately talking with Canadians. And it's just really interesting talking about how th- these things are being processed differently. So I think, yeah, you're right. I think that, that, and you're right, it's not groupthink because the groupthink thing is what's going on right now. If you MSNBC or or Fox News or whatever in the United States and you get a narrative, right? And that narrative, I mean, and it it gets parroted. I mean, it's it's like everybody's on the same talking points and that doesn't lead to, it's one big perspective blindness. It's not a kind of exchange of people trying to sort of paint paint a fuller picture together. Yeah, that word "together" to me is—I mean, it, it seems to me blindingly obvious um, that um, you know there is such there is such a like you don't have to you don't have to explain to anyone that there's value in thinking differently. Maybe, maybe that's the success of coming back full circle to, to Apple. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the success of Apple's branding power that that I think most people just kind of get that. Yeah, I mean, I'm like thinking differently is valuable, is important. And yet, you know, 
most of us are trying to think differently the same way, which is as individuals, um, which is, you know, try to like step, step outside of ourselves, understand how we ourselves process reality. Um, and then kind of have that kind of critical self-reflection to, you know, be more self aware, um, how we ourselves, you know, what our habits of thought and action are so that we can get outside of them and criticize them. And, and all of that would be so much faster and so much more powerful if we just, you know, did it together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we just had, if we just had honest conversations with one another, um, this is how I'm thinking. This is what I would have done. What would you have done? Oh, that's interesting. That's different. I wouldn't have thought of that, you know, instead of kind of going around trying to, you know, put ourselves, you know, for, I, I could sit down for an hour and try to meditate and try to think, oh, how would Scott think about this? Or I could go around the whole world, the whole globe and try to put myself in every perspective of every country. You know, if, if I'm Chinese, how am I thinking about this trade war, stuff like that? Or I could just go, you know, it's not hard in this world. Just call up somebody in China. And say, like, right, hey, can right, we talk? right, right. <laughs> can we just right. talk? Here's, here's how honestly I'm thinking about it. That I'm interested in how honestly you are thinking about it. And then let's just understand one another. But that, but that, that option, which in some ways is so obvious and, and the value of it is, I think, so just transparent is nonetheless uh, so difficult, right? That it is easier for your friend in Atlanta, was it? To, to Alabama, kind of, Alabama. In Alabama, sorry. To, yeah. to, to step outside. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. entire country. But this um, is the whole base camp social experiment, right? This idea, right, is that something like base camp, where we're getting people together that are from all different parts of the world, in all different sort of disciplines that, that think that, that we're going to find more in the questions than in easy reflective answers or something, you know, snap answers and judgments. It, I think that the idea is that, that not with pandemics, with climate, with a host of issues, that model is going to do a lot better. It's going to serve us a lot better as we're trying to navigate and make new maps and explore a new reality. That's going to work a lot better than the alternatives, right? The, than the kind of, than the group think or the individual uh, trying to figure out anything out for themselves. It's this community of question askers that's going to, that's going to get us a fuller map and a fuller picture of, of reality. I, I think it's the missing layer. Yeah, between kind of the individual and and kind of the system, right? Or the, or the public, you know, the the government, yeah. the state, the public, the, the, the public, the public. You know, yeah. pub, public is one of those really interesting words, you know, and 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 it's being used a lot right now. You know, public health, public interest, and yet it is also one of those kind of abstract things. It's totally real. The public it exists, but it's it's hard to to hold it and and so because it's abstract there's also kind of an opportunity to um just fill it with whatever i want it to be yeah yeah um and that's not helpful either right that's just then it's just the magnification of how i look at the world um but we can do much better than that right we can we can we can surround ourselves with with yeah people who are thinking differently than we are yeah and 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 see if we can navigate if we can navigate that and so if you're listening to us and you don't know what Basecamp is, it's, it's this community where we're convening somewhat regularly groups of people around big questions that have to do with... July 25th is the next uh, Basecamp. July 25th is the next one. So uh, if you want to send us an email through the, through the website um, and we will get you signed up because we would love to see you there. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, it is going to be a good one. It is going to be an excellent one. So, so, so the question that we're going to ask... Um, uh, at Basecamp on July 25th 
we're going to ask ourselves and, and one another is what will I give up? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it relates to, it relates to this basic question about, you know, making choices and having choices. Um, and I think that if, if we kind of, if we share with one another, what, what we would give up, um, I think it will help us all to maybe see both the opportunity and maybe the necessity to give some things up. And, and why I think this question of giving stuff up is, is an important one. It's just because I think it allows us to, to work with, um, you know, one of the, one of the, I guess, big questions that this global health crisis is, is inviting us all to explore, um, which is, uh, is more better when it comes to consumption. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the big, uh, I guess, basic assumptions and just basic ways the world works that's been broken right now is that, um, you know, we should all consume as much as we want, sort of whenever we want, whatever we want within our means. Um, and that's basically how, you know, every market economy is set up. What's happened now is that uh, that policy is too dangerous. Yeah. Right? Public, yeah. public health must also be considered, right? So it's not as simple as, uh, you know, you can sell anything if you see a market opportunity. Right, uh, right. You can, you can buy anything if you've got a personal appetite. There, there is now this other consideration, which is public health. And, and, and it's kind of, you know, maybe a, a kind of a unique moment in our lifetimes when that basic policy of how the market economy works has been suspended for everyone. And now it's not that simple. And so I think we owe it to ourselves and, and, and to one another to, to take this, again, maybe unique opportunity and ask the question, in addition to public health, are there other things that we ought to consider? Yeah, because it's interesting you say this because I think the only other thing that created this kind of requirement to sort of pump the brakes on consumerism is, 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 is or world wars, like World War II, right? Where people in England and the United States are rationing and, and, and you, and you, you know, you kind of, you, you can't get whatever you want because there's a war effort and, and, you know, consumption changes. And it's, 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 it's the only thing I can think of that's similar, right? It's this, right. Is this kind of where it's, it's interesting because we're, it's almost like we're in a war effort and every one of us is a combatant because normally how war works is like, you send off the young men and we take certain, we undergo certain sacrifices, but the young men go fight the war. Right. And so we ration things like this, but for this kind of thing, it's like we're war, war over the virus. We're all combatants, right? Like every decision you make yeah. affect everybody right. else. Right. Yeah. That, that, that is interesting. War where we are all on the front line in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's, we're, it's, whether we're again, that kind of making, making our own risk assessments, whether we're aware of it or not. Right. Um, the enemy is at my gates as well. Yeah. Every yeah, is at everyone's yeah. gates. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's right. And 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 so you're right. I mean, it is it is a pretty rare thing where the basic policy of the market economy is suspended. Um, we say, you know, it can't just be whatever, whenever, up up to the limits of your income. We have to consider public health as well. And I and I think it is important. Well. My hypothesis is there's just so much value for us in asking the question, what else maybe should we consider? Because, you know, I mean, you know, maybe everything does go back to normal. Uh, yeah. There's two reasons why we might not. One, because we're unable to. And two, because we choose not to. Right. Because we choose to make some changes. And, you know, would we choose to make some changes? I think a lot of people, uh, I know in my own life I have, I've kind of... I've received hints 
from this pandemic that, you know, if I pruned my consumption in some areas, that might give me uh, like new space for new growth. Yep. Yeah. New space to flourish. And and I think of what, what was her name? The Japanese woman who went around telling people to throw all your stuff away. Mary Kondo. Um, Mary Kondo. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, she, she, you know, she had this very simple, but powerful observation, which is that, you know, most of us are just accumulating stuff most of the time. Uh, and actually just doing that doesn't necessarily make us happy. In fact, in fact, it, it can literally suffocate our joy. Um, and it, and it maybe is, is more than just stuff. It's also kind of all of our consumption activities that have, you know, filled up all of our time. And I think in the early days of, 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 of the lockdown experience, um, a lot of people discovered that actually when I was consuming less, when I had less demands on my time, um, when, when there was less of that fear of messing out, uh, in some ways, people felt more fulfilled. They felt, they felt more opportunities for growth. And it does seem to yeah, be I've, the notion of pruning is a powerful one, that, that we ought to spend time yeah. from time to time and, and, and consciously think about what can I prune away in order to create space for new growth. And this might be one of the only times in our life where it will really be easy, I guess, to get a a room full of people together who get it and say, yeah, okay, let's, let's ask that question. Yeah. What will I prune away? Yeah. It's funny too, because I found like I've made space. There's a guy who from base camp, he's a retired guy, Canadian guy, retired executive, and he's part of the community. I, I talk, I talk with this guy like every other day now. Almost. And we just talk about life and he's got such great wisdom and he's got really great insights and, and it's a joy. Like it's, it's, I, I really, you know, like when I've made space for this stranger in my life had, had this experience not going on and you can't really socialize in the same way and everything. So it's, it's, it's wonderful. I, he's become a dear friend and I'm learning so much about myself, about American culture, because we often talk about the news of the day. And he, and of course, because he's Canadian, he gets American news stories and things like that. But his filter, and it's he's so instructive for me to just chat with him about reality, about life. And I feel like it, it expands my horizon so much more. Um, and that's the kind of thing where like, and I'm a pretty relational person. I, I mean, I was pretty social before this, but but a thing like Basecamp oper- offers me an opportunity to get invite some new people into my life during a pandemic. And um, it's it's been, you know, it's been really a, a blessing in, in, in deep ways. And, and I think the key word there is space. You know, we do yeah. need to... Yeah. We do need to um, create. We do need to create space by pruning some stuff away before we can, you know, bring in something new and and expect it to be a, a kind of a site of personal flourishing. This is the it's idea. More and, the- more and more and more and more and yeah. more. It's like what was this? There, I remember a line in Lord of the Rings, and Bilbo says to to Gandalf after you know centuries of carrying around the one ring that he feels stretched thin like butter oh, spread over too much bread like too, and, and, like yeah like too little butter spread over too much bread yeah yeah and i think that i think that i think that a lot of people in in you know in the immediate days before and then kind of the immediate transition after the pandemic a lot of people felt exactly they could they could identify with that like oh my god i've just now noticed how thin my life has been stretched and and there's so much Kind of so much horizontal and so little depth. Um, I mean, this is the I idea. That, of, yeah, the, the Christian practice of Lent, right? Like, I mean, the idea is when people give up something during Lent, it's not just sort of to flagellate yourself or something. It's that you take away something that's like some some kind of delight, and then you replace it with a deeper spiritual practice and, and presence. So you're not just denying yourself for the sake of denying. You're you're exactly you're you're removing something to make some space for something else. Hmm. You know, and, and I think that's it. Hmm. 
listening to you, that is the thing that immediately comes into mind. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chat with a New Zealand friend of mine where, I mean, they're kind of back, right? They're, they're doing mass right, right. public gatherings and stuff. And, and so he talked about going to a rugby match again, which, you know, hadn't done for a long time. He said the match was terrible. His team lost badly. But the experience, I mean, the way he described it was almost spiritual. So, so the quality of the experience was, was something completely unlike he had ever he had ever had before. Um, and there is this kind of honest, I think, trade-off between quality and quantity yeah. in in our consumption. And Absolutely. I guess to bring it to bring it full circle. So, you know, I think that this question, what will I give up? Yeah. Is is a more powerful question. So it's not what will we give up, it's what will I give up. But it is a more powerful question to ask in a group, to ask together because i think i i think i think it would be i think it will be hard on my own and easier as a group you know going through the experience of lent within the christian community i think is easier than a single person deciding for themselves right. for 40 days right. i'm just going to go off into the desert by myself there's there's a community to that practice yes that that helps to elevate the the meaning of it uh, but i also think that that uh, that likewise you know if 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 the system comes out of this and says, okay, from now on, everybody's going to give up that, there's going to be a massive resistance to it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if yeah, we're participating yeah. in a kind of dialogue with one another and, and coming to a collective realization that, that pruning some stuff away is actually going to help us all to flourish more, then that's, that kind of change is much more likely to actually yeah. exist. Um, so we'll see. We shall see. And... Listeners, our friends, uh, you know, uh, take comfort in the fact that you are lousy risk assessors. <laughs> yes, we all are. <laughs> I'm just staying at home. You're, I'm just staying at home. <laughs> you're, not a, you're, not, you're not special. Don't worry. It's not a... Uh... All right, Chris. Until next time, my friend. Yeah, Scott. Great to see you. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.